Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Habakkuk in the Old Testament. We're going to actually look at the whole book today. It's right after Nahum. That ought to help you out a lot. So once you get to Nahum, it's the next book, Habakkuk. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, what profound words. Hallelujah. I've got nothing else fit for a king. How can fallen, finite, sin-tainted, sin-filled individuals come into your presence but for the grace of God being declared justified, righteous through faith in the shed blood of your son. Our sin imputed on him and his righteousness imputed on us because of grace through faith. What could commoners like us bring to you, the king, other than our worship? You are so worthy, so holy. And Father, as we enter a week in which we celebrate Thanksgiving, may we bring our hallelujahs, our praises to you as acts of worship. We have nothing else to bring. And you are so worthy. As we look at your inspired and errant word, Speak to us, O Lord. We ask this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The initial pilgrims had a rough go of it, did you not? The year is 1620. We have a number of pilgrims, about 121 or two. They leave Holland on the Speedwell. It is a wretch of a ship. It is misnamed, it is anything but fast. The Speedwell constantly takes on water and they barely get to London. From there, the Speedwell will join the larger Mayflower and together about 120 pilgrims want to come to the strange new world. They set out, but almost immediately they have to turn back. The speedwell is taking on water and it's unsafe. They work on the ship and then they set out again in August of 1820. They make it 300 miles out and have to turn back. Again, the speedwell is taking on water. 19 of them decide they're going to stay in England. Understand why they're leaving. They're leaving because of conscience. They're leaving because of scripture. They live under a government that somehow believes it has the right to tell its people what to believe, how to worship. And so they're leaving. But after two turns with death, 19 remain. So about 102 set out the third time. 
It's a 66-day voyage and not an easy one. They go through many storms. A man dies. He dies a gruesome death, screaming out in pain for everyone on the ship to hear. It's horrific. It's etched in the brains of everyone on the ship. Another man is swept overboard, but grabs onto a rope and they pull him back. A baby is born. The baby's name appropriately is Oceanus. That's pretty good, right? But he dies before his second birthday. Another baby will be born before they get off the ship, Pellegrine. He'll serve in the military. He'll live to 83 years old. They want to get to Virginia, but there's no harbor and their supplies have run out and they settle for Plymouth. They put up a real rough little civilization to get them through the winter. Then they plant, then they harvest. And by 1521 at harvest, one out of every two of them is already dead. One of every two. And they gather with what we believe to be 90 Indians and they have a Thanksgiving celebration. And we have a prayer that has come down from that period of time from 1621 and the prayer is remarkable. And in the prayer, they thank God for what he has done. They thank God for their provisions and they look forward to what God will do. And we are the recipients of what God has done. They could never imagine it, never. And yet look at what God has done. Thanksgiving. I think it's the lesson we're going to learn in the book of Habakkuk. Now, if you know anything about Habakkuk, he is not the pastor you want early on in the book. He believes in whack-a-mole. And we're the mole and God's the whacker. He is from the two southern Judean tribes. You remember back in 722 BC, God sent the Assyrians to ransack the 10 northern tribes. They retained the name Israel and they're carried into captivity and they cease to exist. Though they're coming back, there's a remnant. We don't know what the remnant is, but Revelation 7, they're coming back. But as far as anyone knows, all that we have is Judah. Judea, the two southern tribes down by the temple. And God has said to his people, there is immorality, there is idolatry, there is a lack of ethic, and I am going to bring judgment upon my people. And Habakkuk says, amen, why not quicker? Again, he's not the pastor you want He wants whack-a-mole. He wants them to pay. He says, come on, God, a little faster, a little harder, a little stronger. Let me pick up in Habakkuk chapter one. We'll read verses two to four. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Do you hear the question? Are you there, God? Are you there? Or cry to you, violence. 
and you will not save. Do you hear the question? Are you fair, God? Are you even there? Are you fair, God? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Do you even care, God? Are you there? Are you fair? Do you even care, God? What kind of God are you? Your people have been involved in idolatry and immorality, a lack of ethics, and you do nothing, God. Are you there? Are you fair? Do you care? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Maybe we look around and we say, I, I can relate to Habakkuk. It doesn't seem like you're there. It doesn't seem like you're fair. It doesn't seem like you care. We see all sorts of challenge around us from time to time. I, I counsel with couples and they're mistreating one another. They're using vulgar language and abusive language with one another. Where every so often someone is physically violent, and I say, get out of the house. Let's call the police. I'll take you down there. There's no second chance for that kind of nonsense. But we see it all around us. Or maybe we're in the corporate world, and we see that the godly individual doesn't get ahead, but the unethical one seems to be getting ahead of us. And we say, God, are you there? Are you fair? Do you care? And then we remember Paul's words. Oh, Habakkuk didn't have access to them, but Paul's words are there nonetheless for us. Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And although harsh and too broadly applied, one can relate to Habakkuk. He wants justice. He wants God to do something. God has been lax in the mind of Habakkuk. In the mind of this prophet, God has not demonstrated that he's there, that he's fair, and that he cares. And this is a prophet. Well, God responds in verse five. Let me read it. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I suspect that when Habakkuk reads verse five, when he hears verse five spoken, he says, finally, God, whack them all. This is good. Let's go get them, God. You and me, they're idolaters. They're immoral. They're unethical. Let's get them, God. And then God says, but I'm not done talking. Just, just hold it there for a moment. Let me pick up, says God, in verse 6, and I'll go to verse 8. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. I don't know that Habakkuk heard another word after that. He is stunned. 
For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity goes forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is really bad stuff. The Chaldeans, do you know who they are? They're the Babylonians. Do you know what they're like? They're horrible. The sixth century Babylonian nation was as vile as any world power has ever been. In fact, if you look at scripture, there are three archetypical wicked cities, right? There's Sodom, there's Gomorrah, and there's Babylon. Revelation 17, Babylon the great, the harlot, the prostitute, the whore. It is lifted up as the archetypical enemy of God in the end times. Sixth century BC Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. They came to the Temple Mount, the first temple, 587, 586, they destroyed it. We know that they murdered 100,000 Jews. They carried the young nobility into captivity. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Habakkuk, all carried away from family, never to be reunited with family. 70 years of captivity. Nebuchadnezzar with his army. If they didn't put you to death and you were a soldier, they cut off your toes so you couldn't stand or your legs. They cut off your nose and your lips. They gouged out your eyes. They made sure you could never fight again. This is the nation. I doubt you've ever heard of the 10th of Tevet. But the 10th of Tevet is a commemoration held in Israel every year. This year is December 22nd. It's in the month of Kislev. The 10th of Tevet commemorates this event. We are 2,600 years from this event and they commemorate it every year in Israel. Because 100,000 Jews were murdered. All of the nobility children were carried into captivity, never to be reunited with their family. In fact, after the Holocaust, around 1946, the 10th of Tevet now commemorates both this event and the Holocaust simultaneously. The two most vile attacks on the Jews in history are celebrated or commemorated by the 10th of Tevet. It is still commemorated today, 2,600 years later. Habakkuk is stunned. He is stunned. God is going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as his chastising rule and rod against the Jews. He cannot believe it. In fact, let me read to you verse 13 of chapter one. You, God, 
you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He cannot believe it. He cannot believe that God would do this. What kind of God uses the more wicked to chastise the less wicked? What are you doing, God? And you remember what Habakkuk does. Now, we're in a series of sermons of misunderstood, misapplied texts. This one fits, doesn't it? 40% of the Bible is historical literature. It tells us accurately what happened. It is inerrant. It is inspired because exactly what took place is what is given to us. But in the 40% of historical literature, we have to look at epistolary literature, those books by Paul and Peter and John that tell us do and don't. We have to take that literature and apply it to historical literature to discover Should we go and do likewise or should we not? You know what Habakkuk does? He builds a rampart. We're not even sure what that is. It's a tower. He builds a tower and he says, God, I am going to go up on my tower and you are going to answer me and I'm going to let you know if you got it right. I want to tell you that that's a do not do. (laughs) I don't need some of the other literature to know that. Chapter two, verse one. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, God, I'm going to stand up here on this rampart and you're gonna answer me and then I'm gonna let you know if you got it right. I'm going to give you a couple pointers, God, so you better bone up on the right answer. What arrogance. What arrogance. It reminds me of Job. Job I love. I would love to be a man like Job. If you hear me denigrating Job, you haven't heard me correctly. He is a godly, godly man. But he's a man. He's faulted and failed. And you remember the account of Job. He has a beautiful family. Great health and great wealth and life is going well and God allows Satan to afflict him. And the affliction is so bad and he loses his children and he loses his wealth and his body is covered with boils and his wife comes to him and says, just curse God and die. And he says, shall we take good from God and not evil? You speak as a foolish woman. And then four friends, Elphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, they come and they speak nonsense. We know it's nonsense because by the time you get to chapter 42, God says, I'm not even going to forgive those four clowns unless you, Job, pray and ask me to forgive them. So we know that what they've said is not true. Why is it inerrant? Why is it inspired? Because it's exactly what they said. It's recorded exactly as it took place, but don't go and do likewise. Well, Job lives in boil and grief and pain and isolation. And finally, 
finally Job reaches his breaking point and he challenges the goodness of God. And you remember what God says in chapter 38. Who are you that darkens my counsel? Stand up as a man and answer me. That's not a good beginning. And then God asks him 77 questions. And he gets a goose egg. I don't care what the bell curve is. If you get zero out of 77, the bell curve is not going to help you. He got all 77 wrong. And what did he learn? Who are we to challenge God? From time to time, I've heard very sincere, godly individuals, maybe you, maybe me, say to someone, it's okay to be angry at God. He can take it. It's okay to challenge God. He can take it. He can. But show me in scripture where we are ever encouraged to be angry at God or challenge God. Habakkuk did and God rebuked him. Job did and God rebuked him. Job's wife did, and Job rebuked her. We're never given the right to be angry with God, to ask God to intervene, to ask God to change our circumstances. Absolutely. To challenge the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. Absolutely not. You know what Habakkuk forgot? He forgot how small his vantage point is. Now, I know he doesn't have Luke 12, 48, but we do. And in Luke 12, 48, it says this. It says that we will be evaluated by what knowledge we have. To whom much is given, much more is expected. Is it possible? Is it possible that although the Babylonians are more wicked than the Judeans, absolutely true, is it possible that the Judeans are more culpable before the Lord than the Babylonians? Romans 2.15 says, the law of God is written on all of our hearts. We all know that idolatry is wrong. We all know that murder is wrong. We all know that stealing is wrong. We all know that worshiping God is right. The Ten Commandments is written on the heart of every believer, every unbeliever, every person who has ever walked on this earth. But is it possible that the Judeans, with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, with Nehemiah, or excuse me, uh, Habakkuk, is it possible that they have so much light and the Babylonians have so little light that they're more culpable before the Lord than the Babylonians? Is that possible? Every time you and I go to church, every time we read scripture, every time we hear a sermon that is biblical, we become more culpable before the Lord to whom much is given much more is expected. God expects so much out of the church in the United States because we have been given so much light. And you and I are very culpable before the Lord. Is it possible that Habakkuk with his minuscule viewpoint never considered the possibility that as wicked as the Judeans were and is even more wicked that the Chaldeans were that the Judeans were more culpable 
because they had more light. He should have thought that way, but he didn't. We also know something that he didn't know. We know that during that 70 years of captivity, it's not just Babylon, it's also the Medo-Persian Empire. We know that the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians is short-lived. We know that God will raise up Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, and that the Babylonians will be judged by the Medo-Persian Empire. We know justice is actually coming because we know the end of the account. And I want to remind myself of this, that I don't see much of a picture. I see a small picture. On the earth today, we are told that there are 8 billion people, 8 billion. And if you know Christ as your personal savior, you are the object of God's rapt attention. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Not a big deal for a few of you men. But he knows the number of hairs on your head. If you know Jesus, according to Isaiah, your name is tattooed on his hand. You are the object of God's rapt attention. He has a future and a hope, if you know Jesus, that's out of this world. And yet, he's working a tapestry with 8 billion people. There are 10 octillion stars that doesn't even mention how many planets, just stars. Ten octillion that we're aware of in some way or another. And he's working all of this tapestry together in a beautiful way. And he will never leave us, never forsake us. And he will work good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he's doing it all simultaneously. And I barely see any of it. How would I ever be right to judge God when I see this and there is this? The brightest person in this room only has three or four stitches in the massive tapestry. Most of us have one stitch and the tapestry is billions and billions and billions of stitches. We sang a song Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You know, that's where Habakkuk is going. After impugning the goodness, the character of God, do you care? Are you even there? Are you fair? He gets to Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. Paul is so enamored by that, he puts it in Galatians. He puts it in Romans 1.17. It's that verse that Dr. Martin Luther in 1510, going up the Scalia Sancta, the Holy Stairs, on his knees in Rome, comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, a verse that Habakkuk was led to write in the 6th century BC. The just shall live by faith. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what Habakkuk comes to. Let me read the end of the book and then I'm gonna make some comments and I'll read it again. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. This is how it reads. 
Though the fig tree should not blossom, that's not good. Nor fruit beyond the vines, that's a disaster. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. It's going to be a bad year. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Bad things are happening to good people. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let me offer four thoughts from the book of Habakkuk. First, life can be very difficult. If you're going through a difficult time right now, my heart goes out to you. And if you share that in a prayer request, I promise you I will personally pray for you. We have that privilege to bring one another before the Lord. But in the midst of of praying and asking God to intervene, to change, to bring relief. Let's not cross the line from what God blesses, us approaching the king, to impugning the king, to challenging the king. Are you there? Are you fair? Do you care? That's territory we should never be in. So if you're going through a difficult time, my heart goes out to you and I would love to be a prayer partner with you. But let's not cross the line and impugn the goodness, the perfection, the holiness, the majesty of our king. Habakkuk says in the end, yet I will rejoice in you. Second, from the beginning, Habakkuk does something that we ought to admire. He lives in the camp of Isaiah 5.20, where Isaiah says, woe is you. Woe is you if you call evil good and good evil. If you call darkness light and light darkness. If you call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Woe is you. He looks out among the Judeans and he sees immorality, a lack of ethics, idolatry. And he calls it out. But I think early on he calls it out wrong. He speaks to his echo chamber and he's so angry and so bitter. Have you read that on Facebook? Have you seen that on Instagram? Have you been around Christ followers who speak to their echo chamber and they're so angry and they're so bitter and they're so negative and they play to their echo chamber and their echo chamber says, yeah, we don't compromise. And nobody else listens. Listen to what Paul encourages. Ephesians 4.15, very powerful, very convicting. Rather, speaking the truth. Do we speak? Yes. Speak the truth. Vote the truth. Work for change. We speak the truth in love. That's the part that's sometimes missing, isn't it? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I think that changes in the life of Habakkuk who goes from pretty bitter to looking at a great God. 
and rejoicing, even in the midst of the filth. He's not saying the idolatry is okay, the immorality is okay, the lack of ethics is okay. He's not doing that. He's not compromising. But he's saying, you know, I can love these people. I can call what's going on sin, but I can love these people. I can love my country in the midst of it and work for change, pray for change, vote for change, be engaged for change, but I'm going to do it in love. That's the switch we see in Habakkuk's life. Third, we want to remember that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. We want to remember that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's all of these things. We want to remember that. But we also remember that we are not. And that we see a small little speck. Small speck. And so, even the brightest among us sees almost none of the tapestry. And that's where we have to walk by faith, not by sight. And I want to teach myself that lesson. Oh, I want to walk by sight, not by faith. But God calls me to walk by faith, not by sight. And finally, I want to remind myself where joy comes from. We're in a season in which materialism tells me joy comes from Black Friday. (laughs) If I just had one more thing, a bigger house, a better car, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a bigger bank account. If I could go south of the Mason-Dixon line in January, I would have joy. Well, that might bring joy, by the way. (laughs) But joy ultimately is brought by a relationship with the living God. So I want to close by again reading the end of the book. So convicting to me. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. I just laugh because we have a bunch of guys and gals up in deer stands. And maybe they're going to listen to this message today and say, Oh, he remembered me in the stand. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is what I want at Thanksgiving. This is what I want each day in my life. That I can learn to rejoice even when bad things happen, difficult things happen. Because my eyes aren't on my circumstances. They're on my Savior. They're on redemption. That's what I want to remember. And maybe you as well. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the biblical book of Habakkuk. I thank you for a man who, even in the midst of three chapters, we see such transformation. And may you work that transformation in us. Father, we want never to call evil good, never to call darkness light, Never to call bittersweet. We want to live out Isaiah 520. 
But we also want to live out Ephesians 5, or excuse me, Ephesians 4.15. That we are to speak the truth in love. And Father, we don't want to be driven as Habakkuk early on with a whack-a-mole mentality. And we do, Lord, want to learn to rejoice like the end of the book. Even when bad things, difficult things, challenging things happen in our lives. Help us to keep our eyes on you, on your son, empowered by your spirit for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.